Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and I am delighted that you've decided to give us a small share of your week this week to listen to a great conversation with someone who I know that you will really enjoy because she's a a very experienced journalist and communication specialist, and she's moved out of day-to-day journalism and into the world of academia. But it's going to be a, a fantastic conversation, as they are each week. But as we do each week, we begin with the definition of content communication. Content communication is a strategic, measurable, and accountable business process that relies on the creation, curation, and distribution of useful, relevant, and consistent content. The purpose is to engage and inform a specific audience in order to achieve a desired citizen and or stakeholder action. So to my guest this week, Virginia Hausiger AM is an award-winning journalist with over 25 years' experience in news media. She's held senior reporter and presenter roles on Channel 9, The 7 Network and the ABC, and has experience in corporate and strategic communications. She is an adjunct professor at the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis at the University of Canberra and manages a busy portfolio of not-for-profit and community engagements. In 2014, she was made a member of the Order of Australia for services to the community in women's rights, gender equity and the media. She's also a board member of UN Women National Committee of Australia and also the ACT Government's Cultural Facilities Corporation. Virginia Hausiger, thanks very much for joining us in Transition. Absolute pleasure. Hey, listen, take me to that sense of when you were given that award, the AM. Um, you obviously didn't expect it. You don't no. do the work to get to, to get the, the, the honour, but no. it must have been a pretty pleasing moment when obviously someone had nominated you and said, you've done something special yeah. and you, you deserve recognition. And to this day, David, I don't know who nominated me. I have a few... If you, you know, breadcrumbs around the place. Well, no, no, no. I think I've got a few ideas as to who it may have been. But look, uh, of course, I didn't expect it. And this is the bizarre thing, isn't it? As a journalist, I do the stories on people who get these things, yeah. you know. And year after year, I've presented the news when I've been very excited to see people I know get these. Uh, extraordinary awards and on a number of years I've found myself just before going to air ringing someone up to say congratulations this is really exciting Um, and then I got this letter in the mail and to be quite frank I just assumed it was uh, an official invitation to something at Government House. To another cocktail party. Yes. (laughs) Well you know as a journalist particularly in Canberra you you do get these occasionally and um, I didn't open it for a while and when I I did uh, I misread it and and at first I thought it was asking me to nominate someone oh. for a member of the Order of Australia and it, it took a while to sink in. And then I went up to my husband and I said, I think I've been <laughs> nominated for an award. It was it was really extraordinary. And it's it look, I've been very lucky. I've had some terrific um, experiences in my career and I've had some great breaks, but 
this has been the greatest thing that's happened to me professionally. Yeah. It it was such a shot in the arm. It, yeah. it, it was, you know, normally you see people at an older age get these awards mm. for decades and decades and decades of work and service to the community. Mm. And I like to think that I'm very young, but as you and I know that I am. We're both young. Of course, of course. And my, my 25 plus years in media, I started when I was two. But um, I, I sort of feel like I got this at a time in my career when I've got a huge amount yet to do. Yeah. And it was such, as I say, a shot in the arm. It was also a, like, I received it as a tremendous affirmation that all that stuff I've been doing yeah. has been... Um, has been valued mm. and, you know, in little bits and pieces. I, because my portfolio of work is so broad uh, and I feel often that no one would know what I do except me and, and my husband if he pays attention, <laughs> which he often doesn't, of course. But because, you know, I, I would have a busy day where at the end of the day I would be in at the ABC, I would be involved in the bulletin, I'd prepare, uh, present the, the news bulletin outside of that time I was at the ABC, I'd be doing a whole bunch of other things, but often not related to each other. So no one would really know what I was doing. Mm. When I got the award, it was it, it felt like someone had been hovering above me watching yeah. and had seen the extent of what I was doing and was saying, yeah, yeah. We, we value this. Do, do awards matter? I think they do matter. Yeah, yeah, very much so. For that exact reason. Because so much of the the sort of work that people do in the community, and that's what these awards are about, um, goes unrecognised. And it, you don't do it for the recognition, but it does, in my case, certainly help me understand that the work is valued mm. and that it's supported. I think yep. that's probably more the point, that it's supported, that um, it's I'm not doing this entirely on my own. And um, that that meant a lot to me. And now, how will you use that? How will you ab- apply that that privilege, that honour that you've received, in order to achieve the objectives of, of the of the work that's coming? It's a really good question, because interestingly, an award such as an AM, and I'm sure it's the same for OAMs and all of these awards, um, it, it feels like uh, it it <laughs> provides you with further obligation to do what you do. Oh, yeah. you know it, you know I feel now um, that I have been given this honor that um, I am even more obliged mm. to continue this work and mm. and that's that's what it should do, you yeah. know you know on the one hand it's 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 uh, it's a, a an affirmation, it's support, it's encouragement, as I say, a shot in the arm, but it also you know there's there's a a commitment involved too in receiving something like this i have i I consider I have an ongoing job to do to honor this award, okay. Now, you're not here to talk about that. I just thought I was just interested as, as you know, to reflect on the fact that you had. But really, the thing I am interested in, um, as well as I'm interested in the award, of course, but you've just taken the step out. You know, you have left um, the, you know, the profession, so to speak. You are no longer, um, and we do have listeners all around the world, and Virginia 
um, as I read out in the intro, has a long uh, and distinguished career, but your most recent job has been reading the news here in Canberra, the Australian capital, um, for the national broadcaster. So a important role, a significant role, but the last full-time role um, in the media. So at that point of moving on, um, obviously you take your skills with you, but as you sort of peer back over your shoulder, what are you leaving behind? Another good question. Um, After 15 years, I'm leaving behind a very extensive wardrobe (laughs) as a news anchor. Um, I've got way too many clothes. You'll still use all those clothes. You're always I've been looking, giving, always them, been giving them away, honestly. Have you really? I have because I look have at... Have a blazer. I, yeah, I've got at least 60 to give away. I look at them and I see work. You know, I see studio, okay. I see news and right. and I'm over that and I've, I've finished with that. Um, so we're going to see some very natally dressed people around town. Oh, yes, I've been giving away to waitresses in cafes. Um, no, seriously, it's... What do I leave behind? Look, it's an interesting question because in the it, it's actually thirty years since I began my career in media. Yes, I was two, well actually two and a half. But uh, uh, when I began my career in as a as a television news cadet with the ABC, uh, media was very very different. Yeah. And over those thirty years. Um, the changes have been absolutely remarkable. So in terms of what I leave behind, I leave behind an industry that is not the industry I certainly um, set out in as mm. a, a young journalist. And I leave behind an industry that I think is going through dramatic change. The, one of the reasons I stayed in my role as news anchor for 15 years here in Canberra is that when I arrived here from Sydney to set up the ABC TV news, the local news yeah. service, well, it was being set up by a wonderful uh, producer, Bill McLeod, but um, I came along um, because I knew Bill was one of the best in the business and I wanted to work with him and I was excited by the idea of a, a, basically a start-up. We didn't even have an office. In fact, we're in a portal room in the car park at the ABC radio <laughs> studios. We had an old, a really old, beautiful studio that yeah. was built back in the, gosh, I think it was the late 50s, to be yeah, honest, yeah. or the 60s. And we built a building around that. But every every couple of years, there was something new to do. First, there was the building. There was the collecting the staff, building the staff, training the staff, then training staff for a weekend news bulletin, which we, we didn't have for the first year or so. Um then uh, developing the staff, then we had uh, a move towards uh, digitisation and then um, getting rid of our old control room, for example, or get, getting rid of all the old analogue, moving to uh, a digital news service, which also meant getting rid of a lot of staff, retraining people. We moved from journalists being journalists who just did the job of journalism and reporting to making those very people content makers along with editors who became content makers and we all became content makers and providers and journalists became desktop editors as well and editors became uh, reporters and there's been this massive merging of roles and a a change in what we do and also why we do it. What's it done to the product? What's it done to news? Uh, Has it there's two it? ways I can answer this, and I I'd um, like the honest answer. Please. <laughs> I'm debating here. 
Look, what's it done? Um, I still, you know, have uh, connections to the media, of course, and I still will continue writing and doing columns. My husband is is very much a, a media person and a, a senior political correspondent, and my my friends are journalists, so I, I still feel a great fondness and connection with the media. But in truth, I think all of us are grappling with the, the not just the rapid change in technology, but the way the rapid change of the news cycle has changed the way we do what we do and why we do it. And I don't think we've got our heads around how to how to rebuild the news model around a 24-hour cycle in a way that's sustainable and that maintains a level of quality that we can be proud of. Mm. Um, By the time I've left television news, I no longer feel a need to watch a TV news bulletin. Now, once upon a time, I would never have said that. Once upon a time, uh, it was vital for my day that I would listen to, or wake up listening to radio news and a radio current affairs program, that I would read at least four newspapers, three or four newspapers properly, and I would never miss watching one or two news bulletins each day. There's no longer a need to do any of that. In fact, before I've actually lifted my head off my pillow, I've flicked through my Twitter account and pretty much got what I feel I need to get for the day, um, at least for the first half of the day. And then I'm checking throughout the day, as no doubt you are too. So these are tremendous changes. And it has, of course, had a tremendous effect on the, the quality of news and the sustainability of news. Once upon a time, again, we would never have published, we would never have gone to air with the story until we were absolutely, completely, 100% sure it was right. That doesn't happen now, not even in my own news service or the one I've just left, um, because we now have the opportunity to correct online what we've put out there. Uh, if we do a bulletin now in an hour, we've got another bulletin which we can then correct something or change it if needs be or re-edit it. Um, there, is a, there, there isn't the emphasis on the importance of being correct that there used to be, nor is there an emphasis on or, or, or even a, a level of care, I suppose, about the quality of production that there used to be. Um, you know, a television news bulletin now gets away with a whole bunch of things that you never would have got away with even 10 years ago. And look, you know, for some of us that can be when you've been brought up in a very strict sort of environment of production, high production values and and very um, uh, high journalism values and ethics, it could be quite hard to sort of grapple with this new world. But this, this is the point though, isn't it, is that at a time of, you know, deindustrialization and dramatic impact on the way that we live, the jobs that we have, the way that we work, this deconstruction of quality in the media, how is that going to affect the community? How is that going to change the way the community knows about, you know, with any sort of certainty? Because, again, in the old days, we used to rely on, you know, let's use the ABC as an example, rely that you wouldn't put something to air if it wasn't right. You wouldn't go if it was half because we knew and we could trust that that was the case. But if if in this, this transitory world that we're in now, 
how do we know? And, and how do people know? And how do they get confidence? And does it open up the opportunity, as we see, for you know, populism to find its way through the cracks to be able to establish itself? Because if nothing's got credibility, well, you can say whatever you like. So the rules of the game are now so different. The rules are entirely different. Mm. And, yes, in this post-truth world yeah. of populism, yeah. uh, it is, you know, very concerning as to where do we go to find information about the world around us that we can trust and that we can rely on. Well, look, I, I am an optimist by nature and therefore I'm not going to say, you know, I'm, I'm terribly concerned and, you know, it's all going to hell in a, you know, in, in a big basket. But... I think uh, one of the things that concerns me is that we are all, as consumers of media, engaging in narrow casting and we are following what we like, who we like, uh, consuming what what fits with our own worldview. Mm. Um, And that, that narrow casting is bad for all of us. It's like eating junk food all the time. You know, do it occasionally, it's delightful, but do it all the time, it makes you sick, you know, um, or it'll make you fat. You know, w- w- this is a concern We and I have to pull myself up on this. You know, I have to stop myself consciously following, in particularly on social media, um, the pathways of news and information that suit me and mm. every now and then make myself branch out and read things that I wouldn't normally read, graze over things that I wouldn't normally even open. Um, I make myself do that so that I can be, you know, broader in, in my at least in my knowledge of what's going on. But where are the incentives for you to do that? You know, to to leave your comfortable patch, to leave to leave your niche. Where well, is, that's that's a good the, question. Beyond the intellectual. Yeah, it's you know, a very good question. I guess being a journalist, when being a journalist, mm. once a journalist, always a journalist. Mm. I know that I need to do that, and also I have a you know a, a, you know a curiosity is my second name. I am mm. deeply curious, and yeah. I, I want to know what others are reading and thinking yeah. and, and talking about, even. If it doesn't, it's not particularly of interest to me. But in answer to your question, what does it mean for the wider community? Well, you know, talk about disruption. I mean, the disruption in uh, media has changed all our lives and will continue to. I think it also presents tremendous opportunities and it presents tremendous opportunities for organisations, for government departments, for government entities to be delivering information and telling stories directly to their stakeholders in a way that they haven't done before, bypassing mainstream media or legacy media and by dealing directly with those they need to inform. I mean, there are tremendous opportunities in this. I'll just tell you a little anecdote about this. Almost a decade ago, I was sitting at a Walkley conference. The Walkley is the organisation that journalists are are involved in. And... um, we had a, a panel discussion and on so it was a long time ago, on this panel were a number of senior journalists and a couple of politicians, including one Malcolm Turnbull. And he said at the time he had a, a website and he was one of the first politicians to really tackle s- social media, as you know. But he had a website, a personal website, in which he was posting at the time blogs about his dog, which I thought were, was really crazy. But we got talking about why he was doing that. And he said "I that the time will come, and referring to the audience of journalists, the time will come when I don't need you. 
I will talk directly to the people I want to talk to. I know I won't need you. And people scoffed and laughed and thought how arrogant this man was. But I remember thinking at the time, I think he's got a point there. Yeah. I mean, I'm not interested in listening, reading about his, the blog uh, about his dogs, but the fact he was doing it I thought was really quite interesting. And the fact that he was reaching out to his constituency in a way no other uh, politician was at the time. Now, you know, fast forward 10 years later and I think that was, you know, a, a, an example of someone who could see the future um, and was trying to engage with it. And uh, I thought that was, you know, quite um, profound, really. The opportunities that this new way of communicating, a new way of talking, a new way of learning, a new way of seeking information has uh, has opened up are tremendous. I don't think we fully understand those opportunities. I, I think we're, you know, whilst we get miserable about what's happened to mainstream media, we're right on the, on the edge, I think, of understanding what the opportunities that have opened up really are. Mm. And, and, you know, that's exciting to me. Mm. Well, really? I, look, I, and, and I, I completely agree with you because, you know, content communication is precisely that. It's about equipping organisations so that they can be their own media for their own stories. So what advice would you give to government departments and agencies and people working in government departments and agencies that would help them to be good at this? You know, because it's, it's a different skill and it's a different capability to what – you know, traditionally it's been about buying advertising and talking points and supporting the minister and media releases, whereas now the transition is to creation and curation and distribution, which is a which is a journalistic skill. Absolutely. Look, there's a stack of things that I would say, but I, I guess... Okay, I'll, let's start at the top. All right. I'll try to break it down to just a few. But okay. one in particular is there, certainly to, to government departments, there is a tremendous need to understand better that communication is primary. It's not something your communication department does. It's not something that should be, you know, a, a bottom line on your budget, you know. It, it, those days are over. Mm. Now, every single member of your team needs to be a communicator. We need to be able to tell our stories. Everyone needs to understand that. So understanding that communication is now what we all do, first and foremost, is critical. And I'm surprised at how it seems very difficult for some people to get their heads around that. Well, it's true. And, and, and I think communication still as, is seen as, you know, the end of the line. You know, the colouring in department. Get us the yeah, brochure, well, get us the video. You know, well, there, there's not that appreciation. Goodbye yet. to those people. They're yeah. not going to be around for long, yeah. David. I mean, really, they aren't, it's are true. they? It, well, the, it's the, true because I think the, the change in technology has made communication far more important because everyone who we need to talk to is actually there. They're connected. They're carrying around those, exactly. you know, supercomputers in their pocket that if we are smart enough and good enough to tell an engaging story, hopefully they might know, get some of yeah. their attention where yeah. they, they want to look at it. And link directly to you and, too. Correct. To tell you what they want and you to feed back what they want. Yes. You know, it, it, it's, as I say, the opportunities are tremendous. So first and foremost, understanding that storytelling and communication is primary, is critical. It comes first. It, it must. I mean, people who talk to me about, oh, yes, you know, we're doing this fantastic campaign and blah, 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 and then are we going we'll to get, we'll get to the communication strategy when we get around to it. Mm. I mean, for goodness sakes. I mean, <laughs> as I say, those, those people won't survive, those organisations won't survive. So understanding its primary is, is first. Secondly, language. 
I am so <laughs> tired of really poor use of language, a, a tremendous, particularly here in Canberra, a tremendous propensity for organisations and government entities in particular to stick to an old-fashioned uh, langu- formal language of their sector that is idiotic. Can I, t- can I tell you a, 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 a most recent favourite from a, uh, a document I saw this morning? They were talking about a particular task that they're asking us to do. And one of those tasks was dialogue enablement. <laughs> dialogue enablement. <laughs> Rolls off I the tongue, it. doesn't I it? I love it. I love it. There is so much of that shit about. It's amazing. I've just done a conference, and I won't name the organisation because I know I have great respect for them, but it, it covers a particular sector that's a terribly important sector. But Honestly, I kept going back to the organisers saying I need another brief because I couldn't understand the briefing material. And I'm not stupid, but it was so laden down with jargon and and uh, acron- well, acronyms, you know, that's another thing, but sure. just jargon. But also I think where people uh, have trouble really understanding what it is they're trying to say, they hide behind yeah. this very formal language. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And when I started ripping through this brief saying, I, I don't understand this and I don't understand that, at one point I even spoke to the secretary of the department to say, I don't get this and I'm not stupid. Um, he had to admit he didn't understand it either. You know, and well, I think so, that's, a, that, that's a very good point, this notion of hiding finding words, assembling words because you don't know the you don't know yourself and you sort of put up the barriers of this impenetrable language. Yeah, and, and it's it, got, it, there's nothing there. It's just yeah, it a, doesn't you know, mean anything. No. And and people seem to think also if they think they do understand what it means that it sounds good, it sounds important and it's worth, you know, paying for. Yeah. But uh, it, it's nonsense. We have to simplify our language. If you I do a lot of reading of reports from the UK and the US, particularly in the area of gender equality and diversity um, and inclusiveness, which is where I'm working now. And, you know, I'm so impressed by particularly some of the, well, both the UK and the American reports, but some of them just so sharp yeah. and, and and clear and concise and short. Yeah. Um, here in Australia, I think, you know, we've got a long way to go to in our public information to, to understand that and know or, or appreciate that short is actually better. Yeah. It's often more profound and it's certainly sharper. So language is a, is a terribly important one. Might I just say on this issue, um, I'm going to be critical of the media here too. Media also is guilty of this. The number of times I have said to journalists in our newsroom uh, over several years when they've written an introduction um, yeah. for a, a report that I have to present and I've gone up to them and said, I don't understand this or I'm trying to rewrite this because I'd rewrite a lot of my stuff. I don't get it. What do you mean? And they'd say, oh, that's what's on the press release. Yeah. And pull out the press release because there is a lot of cut, cutting and pasting that goes on these days, as you know, which is an, an issue of time, the, the very short amount of time journalists have. So often, yep, they will rip from press releases and I'm, I'm appalled to say that, but it's true. And that's why the press release needs to be really clear. <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we'll then have a look at various press releases or, or um, uh, company documents or annual reports or 
or um, budget papers, although the budget papers are getting better. But it's some of the, the language used in these um, formal uh, pieces of communication are just impenetrable. And unfortunately, journalists are regurgitating that because, in fact, they don't understand it themselves. But how do people get the courage to continue to ask the question, to say, look, I don't understand? If you why, don't understand... Keep asking. Keep a- Absolutely. And yeah. it's the, as I say to, to, to young students, uh, to cadets all the time, it's the first question you should be asking in a press conference is what does that mean? Yeah. Or, or, you know, can you explain that? Um, ask a politician when they give you a ridiculous answer, what do you mean? And you'll quickly find that sometimes they really have trouble explaining it themselves yeah. because they don't know uh, or they haven't thought it through properly. Um, you know, the, the most powerful questions can be, can you, what do you mean? Or what are you saying? Or what do you want? That's another thing about communication, David, and I'm sure you come across this every single day also. The number of times that we can sit down with people when we're trying to, you know, get our heads around their brief or uh, their particular aims for a seminar, for example, or they'll call me in because they want me to facilitate a panel discussion when they don't really know what it is they want to get out of it. Yeah. And that, that's what I often find myself saying is, what do you want? What, what do you want people to understand from this event or from this uh, discussion? Or what do you want people to walk out the door saying as they leave? What do you want? What do you mean? How do you think people will understand that? What behaviour change do you want in them? How do you want them to think? All these sorts of really basic questions we don't ask. Yeah, but if we get those, that can really put us in a, a good position to then tell the story. But then how do you get the story out into that world of fragmentation and change? What are, what's maybe some tips about getting people interested in what it is that you have to say? One of the things that I think is very easily done, and again, it's not done often enough, is uh, simply when you are thinking of your target audience, in fact, un- first and foremost, understand who your target audience is. Yeah. I mean, how often have you prepared something for someone when they've got no idea who they're actually talking to? Um, you're wasting your time and money and efforts and resources and all the rest if you don't understand who your audience is. Audiences these days are very diverse because because of narrow casting, mm. you know, we can break down an audience over pages and pages and pages, you know, if you want. It's not – once upon a time when I was, you know, in the early days when I was at commercial media, we used to talk about um, that audience and, uh, well, one particular commercial station, they used to refer to them as – Mr. and Mrs. Maud. Um, it was one audience. It was that general audience. There's no such thing as the yeah, general audience yeah, now. True. So understand who your audience is. Then get out of your chair or take your shoes off and go and sit in their chair, stand in their shoes. See what you're doing from their perspective. Literally go and stand in their shoes and look back at what you're doing and see how the audience might understand it or comprehend it or what they might be wanting from it. So when you flip something around and try and see it from your audience perspective, that changes the nature of your communication. So often organisations will send out key messages that are, are, are organisationally oriented. So it's all about them. It's all about what the organisation might do or, or, or say. It's not actually directed at the target audience. So it's not directed specifically at what the audience might want. I'm always saying flip it around and think about uh, your key message being recipient-oriented. Yeah. It's, it's got to be about 
the personal, the audience. It's not about you, the organisation. So understand where your audience is standing and sitting to see and sense how your message is going to be received. And would you agree that the bar is even higher now? Because people have so much choice. There yeah, are so many places yeah. where they can apply their attention that unless you are communicating in a way that is useful, that is relevant, that is consistent, that's adding value, why would I bother? Exactly. I, I'll go somewhere yeah, else. I think the bar is much higher, but the, the opportunity there is that it uh, it makes us all uh, uh, need to be a lot more honest and a lot more transparent. You know, the, 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 that public or that audience um, have a tremendous radar, radar for um, insincerity yeah. and, and for bullshit, really. <laughs> they do. And I've been saying this in, in news organisations for a long time, you know, that, People see through the crap. They see through the nonsense. They see through the spin very, very quickly. So because the bar has been raised in terms of people's uh, ability to consume such a vast range of media now and go to so many different sources, it is all the more important to be to be honest and transparent as well as clear. Excellent. Well, Virginia Hausinger, thank you very much for joining us in Transition this week. Congratulations on all your success. Congratulations on a, a wonderful career because you really you know, led the way, I think, pioneering in many ways around really credible voice, you know, in presenting the news. You weren't just, you know, there. You were a journalist presenting the news and I think that brought a weight and a depth to it. And I think, you know, we all still enjoy going home and watching you on the news. Well, thank you very much. And good luck with the <laughs> next pass. And I will get you back um, to talk about all of that stuff because it's an interesting path that you've, you've chosen around gender. And as the father of two young daughters, it's something that fascinates me because, again, it's this sense of, well, let's keep changing this world if we can to, to make sure that all of the biases that are there, whether they're... Um, you know, inherent or or, or um, they're obviously real, but whether they're deliberately put in, in the way or whether they're just, you know, through thoughtlessness and carelessness. But I think there's so much work to be done in that space. And I think that's Huge. such a great thing for you now. I like this idea of a second career almost. It's like, okay, now I can tool myself up and use those skills, those communication skills to really apply it to a, yeah. an area where you can, you know, make a difference globally, I think, in this space. Yes. Well, look, hopefully. And thank you very yeah. much for that, David. And look, I, as I say, I'm very glad I started my journalism career when I was two years old. So now I've got plenty of years ahead of me. <laughs> Excellent. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us once again. I'm sure you'll agree that, you know, so much insight there, so much wisdom, so much experience. And I think if you just take some of those points that Virginia mentioned, you know, that notion of standing in the shoes of the audience to see what it is that you're saying from their point of view, get that bit right and get the language right as well. That's a, a real bugbear of mine is keep it simple, keep it clear, keep it to the point and engage consistently over time because you're going to need to do that if you're going to build and rebuild trust with relationships, uh, relationships with citizens and stakeholders. So thanks again for joining us this week. We'll be back again at the same time next week. Thanks very much for your time. Bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.